Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and it's been a while since I've recorded one of these because it's been August and people need vacations, and things have actually been crazy as they always are, but mostly because if all goes well on Saturday, I will finally be back in Europe. I am traveling tomorrow and COVID willing and airlines willing and the world willing, I will be finally getting back uh, to do some field work in, in Eastern Europe, as well as some events in Western Europe. Uh, I'm going to be at a festival in Ostend, Belgium on September 11th and 12th, speaking, uh, being part of a debate and also uh, doing an, an interview. Uh, it's called the Manifiesta um, and it's a, a two-day outdoor event. If anybody is in Belgium and listening, uh, welcome you to attend. Uh, I'm also going to be doing a bookstore talk in Barcelona and a keynote address in Paris. So if any of you listeners out there are willing to, you know, venture out in the into the world of, of COVID, uh, I think at least as far as I know right now, all of these events are still scheduled to be in person. I will put some links in the in the show notes if you are interested. I also want to mention that in the last month since I've done a recording, I am really happy to announce the publication of the Korean edition of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. It has a very interesting cover, and uh, I obviously can't read the translation, so I'm not sure uh, what the uh, translation is like, but I know that it's been out in Korea now for a couple of weeks, as well as the Portuguese version, which, which came out in earlier July. And there is a Japanese version, I believe, on the horizon, although I don't have the exact details of when that one will be out. But it's been very exciting because this uh, is that now there are 13 translations of the book and the, it's 14 foreign editions because there's a British Commonwealth edition that's slightly different actually than the American edition of the book. The other really exciting thing that sort of happened is I hired a summer research assistant at the University of Pennsylvania, student that I've had for a couple of years, and she has decided to put together a little TikTok uh, I'm sure many of you know that I'm quite social media averse, but she thought that it would be fun to profile some of uh, interesting women like Alexandra Kollontai, like Claudia Jones, like Vilma Espin and Emma Goldman, sort of revolutionary left women on in these little one minute TikTok formats. So I, uh, I'm basically, she's my research assistant. Uh, she got paid for the summer to create this TikTok channel. And uh, it has, I think, five or six videos. So if you're interested, if you're on TikTok, I don't fully understand how the, the technology works or exactly how the platform functions. I'm learning. But Abby is her name. And she is um, putting together these nice little videos that are uh, about, that are going to be primarily about really cool leftist women. So you can check that out. I will also put a note, uh, put a link in the show notes. 
So today I am going to read the first part of a 1916 essay that was a pamphlet that Alexandra Kolontai wrote, and it is called Working Woman and Mother. And I really like this essay because it really sort of shows you the rhetorical style that Alexandra Kolontai used when she was trying to reach out to working class women. So I'm going to read the first part of the essay today in this episode, and then I'm going to record the second part for next week. And uh, hopefully... Uh, when you listen to the second part of the essay, I will be safely ensconced in Europe and I will record the ne- the following episode after that from, from the field. Um, so fingers crossed, all the travel goes well and you will hear from me again because uh, right now it just, I haven't been on a plane in a really long time and it all feels so incredibly intimidating with all the masks and the tests and the documents and the craziness around the Delta variant surging in various places. So, uh, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. I'm fully vaccinated and I'm hoping that there won't be a breakthrough infection or anything like that. So anyway, without further ado, this is Alexandra Kolontai's 1916 essay, Working Woman and Mother, Part 1. Mashenka, the factory director's wife. Mashenka is the factory director's wife. Mashenka is expecting a baby. Although everyone in the factory director's house is a little bit anxious, there is a festive atmosphere. This is not surprising, for Mashenka is going to present her husband with an heir. There will be someone to whom he can leave all his wealth, the wealth created by the hands of working men and women. The doctor has ordered them to look after Mashenka very carefully. Don't let her get tired. Don't let her lift anything heavy. Let her eat just what she fancies. Fruit? Give her some fruit. Caviar? Give her caviar. The important thing is that Mashenka should not feel worried or distressed in any way. Then the baby will be born strong and healthy. The birth will be easy and Mashenka will keep her bloom. That is how they talk in the factory director's family. That is the accepted way of handling an expectant mother in families where the purses are stuffed with gold and credit notes. They take good care of Mashenka the lady. Do not tire yourself, Mashenka. Do not try to move the armchair. That is what they say to Mashenka the lady. The humbugs and hypocrites of the bourgeoisie maintain that the expectant mother is sacred to them. But is that really in fact the case? Mashenka the laundress. In the same house as the factory director's wife, but in a back part in a corner behind a printed calico curtain huddles another Mashenka. She does the laundry and the housework. Mashenka is eight months pregnant, but she would open her eyes wide in surprise if they said to her, Mashenka, you must not carry heavy things. You must look after yourself for your own sake, for the child's sake, and for the sake of humanity. You are expecting a baby, and that means your condition is, in the eyes of society, sacred. Masha would take this either as uncalled-for interference or as a cruel joke. Where have you seen a woman of the working classes given special treatment because she is pregnant? Masha, 
and the hundreds of thousands of other women of the property-less classes who are forced to sell their working hands know that the owners have no mercy when they see women in need, that they know no other alternative, however exhausted they may be, but to go out to work. An expectant mother must have, above all, undisturbed sleep, good food, fresh air, and not too much physical strain. That is what the doctor says. Masha the laundress and the hundreds of thousands of women workers, the slaves of capital, would laugh in his face. A minimum of physical strain, fresh air, wholesome food, and enough of it? Undisturbed sleep? What working woman knows these blessings? They are only for Mashenka the lady and for the wives of the factory owners. Early in the morning before the darkness has given way to dawn, and while Mashenka the lady is still having sweet dreams, Mashenka the laundress gets up from her narrow bed and goes into the damp, dark laundry. She is greeted by the fusty smell of dirty linen. She slips around on the wet floor. Yesterday's puddles still have not dried. It is not of her own free will that Masha slaves away in the laundry. She is driven by that tireless overseer, need. Masha's husband is a worker and his pay packet is so small, two people could not possibly keep alive on it. And so in silence, gritting her teeth, she stands over the tub until the very last possible day, right up until the birth. Do not be mistaken into thinking that Masha the laundress has iron health, as the ladies like to say when they are talking about working women. Masha's legs are heavy and swollen with veins. Through standing at the tub for such long periods, she can walk only slowly and with difficulty. There are bags under her eyes. Her arms are puffed up and she has had no proper sleep for a long time. The baskets of wet linen are often so heavy that Masha has to lean against the wall to prevent herself from falling. Her head swims and everything becomes dark in front of her eyes. It often feels as if there is a huge rotten tooth lodged at the back of her spine and that her legs are made of lead. If only she could lie down for an hour, have some rest, but working women are not allowed to do such things. Such pamperings are not for them, for, after all, they are not ladies. Masha puts up with her hard lot in silence. The only sacred women are those expectant mothers who are not driven by that relentless taskmaker, need. Masha the maid. Mashenka the lady needs another servant. The master and mistress take in a lass from the country, Mashenka the lady likes the girl's ringing laughter and the plate that reaches down below her knee and the way the girl flies around the house like a bird on the wing and tries to please everyone, a gem of a girl. They pay her three rubles a month and she does enough work for three people. The lady is full of praise. Then the factory director begins to glance at the girl. His attentions grow. The girl does not see the danger. She is inexperienced, unsophisticated. The master gets very kind and loving. The doctor has advised him not to make any demands on his lady wife. Quiet, he says, is the best medicine. 
The factory director is willing to let her give birth in peace, as long as he doesn't have to suffer. The maid is also called Masha. Things can easily be arranged. The girl is ignorant, stupid. It is not difficult to frighten her. She can be scared into anything. And so Masha gets pregnant. She stops laughing and begins to look haggard. Anxiety gnaws at her heart day and night. Masha the lady finds out. She throws a scene. The girl is given 24 hours to pack her bags. Masha wanders the street. She has no friends, nowhere to go. Who is going to employ that kind of girl in an honest house? Masha wanders without work, without bread, without help. She passes a river. She looks at the dark waves and turns away, shivering. The cold and gloomy river terrifies her, but at the same time seems to beckon. Masha, the dye worker. There is confusion in the factory's dye department. A woman worker has been carried out looking as if she is dead. What has happened to her? Was she poisoned by the steam? Could she no longer bear the fumes? She is no newcomer. It is high time she got used to the factory poison. It is absolutely nothing, says the doctor. Can't you see? She is pregnant. Pregnant women are likely to behave in all sorts of strange ways. There is no need to give in to them. So they send the woman back to work. She stumbles like a drunkard through the workshop back to her place. Her legs are numb and refuse to obey her. It is no joke working 10 hours a day, day after day, amid the toxic stench, the steam, and the damaging fumes. And there is no rest for the working mother. Even when the 10 hours are over, at home there is her blind old mother waiting for dinner and her husband who returns from the factory tired and hungry. She has to feed them all and look after them all. She is the first to get up in the mornings. She's on her legs from sunrise, and she is the last to get to sleep. And then to crown it, they have introduced overtime. Things are going well at the factory. The owner is raking in profits with both hands. He only gives a few extra kopecks for overtime. But if you object, you would know the way to the gates. There are, heaven be phrased, enough unemployed in the world. Masha tries to get leave by applying to the director himself. I'm having my baby soon. I must get everything ready. My children are tiny and there is housework. And then I have my old mother to look after. But he will not listen. He is rude to her and humiliates her in front of the other workers. If I started giving every pregnant woman time off, it would be simpler to close the factory. If you didn't sleep with men, you wouldn't get pregnant. And so Masha, the dye worker, has to labor until the very last minute. That's how much bourgeois society esteems motherhood. Childbirth. 
For the household of Masha the Lady, the birth is a big event. It is almost a holiday. The house is a flurry of doctors, midwives, and nurses. The mother lies in a clean, soft bed. There are flowers on the tables. Her husband is by her side. Letters and telegrams are delivered. A priest gives thanksgiving prayers. The baby is born healthy and strong. That is not surprising. They have taken such care and made such a fuss of Masha. Masha the laundress is also in labor, behind the calico curtain in the corner of a room full of other people. Masha is in pain. She tries to stifle her moaning, burying her head in the pillow. The neighbors are all working people, and it would not do to deprive them of their sleep. Towards the morning, the midwife arrives. She washes and tucks up the baby and then hurries off to another birth. Mashenka is now alone in the room. She looks at the baby. What a thin little mite, skinny and wrinkled. Its eyes seem to reproach the mother for having given birth at all. Mashenka looks at him and cries silently so as not to disturb the others. Masha the maid gives birth to her child under a fence in a suburban back street. She inquired at the maternity home, but it was full. She knocked at another, but they would not accept her, saying she needed various bits of paper with signatures. She gives birth, she walks on, she walks and staggers. She wraps the baby in a scarf. Where can she go? There is nowhere to go. She remembers the dark river, terrifying and yet fascinating. In the morning, the policeman drags a body out of the river. That is how bourgeois society respects motherhood. The baby of Masha the dye worker is stillborn. It has not managed to survive the nine months. The steam the mother inhales at the factory has poisoned the child while it was in the womb. The birth was difficult. Masha herself was lucky to come through it alive. But by the evening of the following day, she is already up and about, getting things straight, washing and doing the cooking. How can it be otherwise? Who else will look after Masha's home and organize the household? Who would see that the children were fed? Masha the lady can lie in bed for nine days on doctor's orders, for she has a whole establishment of servants to dance around her. If Masha the dye worker develops a serious illness from going to work too soon after birth and cripples herself as a result, well, that's just too bad. There is no one to look after the working mother, no one to lift the heavy burdens from the shoulders of these tired women. Motherhood, they say, is sacred, but that is only true in the case of Masha the Lady. So that's the end of part one of this 1916 essay, Working Woman and Mother by Alexandra Kollontai. I think it's really interesting how she starts this essay with the story of four women named Masha which is a diminutive for Maria. So it's a a very common name, as I'm sure you know. And the way in which she just tells a story about these different women's lives. And of course, the women who would be reading this pamphlet in 1917 would know a lady, a dye worker, a maid, a laundress. They would understand the social situation of these women and how different the experience of mother of, of ex- being an expectant mother pregnancy and then obviously childbirth would be depending on your social class. So I think what's fascinating, as you will see in the next episode, is that Colin Ty really takes a wonderful 
rhetorical approach in this pamphlet because she tells stories. She starts with stories of actual women or, or kind of composite women. And then she slowly kind of draws the reader in so that she can begin to suggest alternatives, particularly the kinds of alternatives that socialism and communism will give to working women. So that's it for this week. As always, thanks so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Oh,